The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act Moral Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Okay, Paul, it looks like we are recording here, which uh, I've, I'll admit it, I forgot it in the past that I was supposed to press record. This, of course, is the Curbsiders on our show tonight. We are going to be talking about anxiety with Dr. Deepa Saker. And Paul, we also have a great co-host, but I let's just leave that as a tease for right now. And why don't you tell people, what is it that we do on Curbsiders? Sure. We'll build the suspense. I like it. Matt, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And now I'm just going to reveal we are, <laughs> we are joined by the fantastic Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Beth, how are you? Doing very well. Great. Why don't I let you tell us a little bit about our guest? Yes. So we have um, the wonderful Dr. Deepa Saker with us today. Um, we're talking about generalized anxiety disorder, uh, which is a very common diagnosis that we see in clinic. Dr. Saker is a proud general internist and clinician educator. She practices as a primary care physician and also supervises students and residents in both the primary care and inpatient settings. She loves thinking about how people learn, so much so that she has spent the last two years pursuing a master's in medical education. She's excited about promoting generalist careers in residency and enjoys mentoring learners to find their passions in medicine. You know, Paul, before, I just wanted to tell you a little <laughs> a little personal anecdote. Sure, um, as you know, I, I have a, a great relationship with my tailor, and I'm a little worried that she has anxiety. You know why? She's all wound up. <laughs> no, actually, she seems stressed, Paul. You know, she's a seamstress, and she seems stressed. So I'm a little worried about her. Wow. Anyway. <laughs> Any thoughts, Paul, or should we move no, I'm on? I'm just you sit with that. <laughs> I will sit with my shame. All right. Thank you to uh, 32 hilariouspuns.com <laughs> for, that, for that joke. Anyway, I wanted to remind the audience that this and most episodes are available for free CME and mock credit through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And I think now it's time we, uh, we get to our guests. Deepa, thank you so much for uh, sitting through the, at what was most certainly, <laughs> which was most certainly a very painful intro, but uh, welcome to the show. And can you please give the audience a one-liner about yourself and a hobby or interest that you have outside of medicine? Yeah. So thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I was holding in my giggles because I wasn't in, you know, didn't have the mic yet, but <laughs> that was a, a fun intro. I am a 34-year-old general internist. I have you know moved across the country for my training. Um, and excited to be um, here back in person at SGIM, meeting all these people that I've met over the last couple of years again. Hobbies outside of medicine. I am going to be very honest. The pandemic gave me a lot of very common pandemic hobbies and my cooking is better and my gardening skills are better, but my dog is still my biggest hobby. So we have a lot of fun, lots of walks, and she gives me a wonderful company when I get home. Yeah, no, once again, we return to our, our most well-adjusted guests, our gardeners. <laughs> <laughs> why all my plants die. I'll ask my usual, um, any book, movie, TV show that you've recently enjoyed that you think our listeners would also enjoy as well? Yeah, I'm actually reading this book called American Dirt, which is fantastic. I, I think it just gives a lot of the human perspective to a lot of what we hear in the news. Highly recommend. I've actually spent this year reading more about kind of 
political war type stuff in different parts of the country, but really just to understand the humanistic part behind it. So it's been very informative. So I, I thought this was like a going along with your gardening. <laughs> I, yeah. Totally was not what I was expecting. Another question we like to ask, and especially as I'm a rising almost intern, do you have any advice for folks who are about to start intern year? Ooh, good question. So intern year is just, it's just a lot of learning and you're going to feel like you're blindsided at so many different turns, but I think approaching it with, um, a growth mindset, I like to say, as, a, as an educator. Um, and you're you're there to learn. So soak it in, learn from your patients, learn from the people around you, learn from your peers. Awesome. Love that advice. <laughs> when we did our Becoming a PGY1 episode, I some of the advice from that that stuck with me was there was a, I believe it was a program director survey. And Alex Glazer, who's now a program director himself, was saying that one of the things they want is just essentially people that are functioning well in the hospital, working well in teams, they're working, they've worked on their efficiency. We don't necessarily care if interns have the greatest differential diagnosis in the world. I think that unburdens people like just, just focusing on like learning to do the job well. And then as a second and third year, you really build your medical knowledge and your differential and all those kind of things. Which is when you actually have the time to do that. I think think you're so overwhelming. You probably have too high expectations of yourself. Yeah. Like first week, find the bathroom. You're right. All right. And then probably by the time this, this probably drop at a good time for this to be in, in, in our first 10 minutes of the show, because I, I think this is going to come out just before intern year starts for people. So yeah, I've been good. getting ready, asking that question, like every episode I've been on for the past year. So you know, <laughs> I'm setting you guys up to always have an episode ready. <laughs> right. Well, uh, before we get into it, I think we probably have time, Beth, if you had a pressing pick of the week, uh, we could, we could take one from you, but no pressure. I'll give a quick pick of the week because I read it, um, on my way to S gym. I'm almost done with it. Notes from a young black chef, fantastic read. It's about one man's journey through the culinary world and sort of his story. It's going to be made into a movie. I could go on and on. It's excellent. Highly recommend reading it, especially when, you know, we're so used to seeing so many books about chefs or people in kitchens who are white men. So it's very refreshing. This episode is sponsored by Indeed. And audience, you know what curbsiders were fans of Indeed, because as I've said before, we recently used Indeed to hire some folks for the show. And guess what? It was super easy. We got tons of qualified applicants. And in fact, it took us a while to sort through all the great applicants, which was a great problem to have. Indeed is the one platform that you need for hiring because you can attract interview and hire right there on their platform. They make it super easy. That's why more than 3 million small businesses have used Indeed for their hiring needs, including the curbsiders. So check them out and start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com dot com slash internal medicine. One more time, indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Pay per qualified applicant not available for all users. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial, the national bank for doctors by doctors. As a doctor, the average bank isn't built for our community. They see our debt levels or limited credit history as red flags. At Panacea Financial, they get it because they have lived it. As a bank founded by two physicians, they are dedicated to providing solutions for the unique needs of doctors and doctors in training, including their PRN personal loan. Do you have a good way to cover the costs of moving for residency, fellowship, or even becoming an attending? 
Do you want to avoid credit cards or refinance existing and expensive credit card debt? Then check out their PRN personal loan as a way to help. It has a period of no or low affordable payments, no co-signer requirement, and a low fixed interest rate that does not depend on your credit score. Even if you don't need any of Panacea's doctor-specific loans that include student loan refinance or practice buy-in loans, you can refer a friend, and Panacea Financial will pay up to $250 for each referral, and there is no limit to how many people you can refer. Join the growing number of doctors nationwide that expect more from their bank and have switched to Panacea Financial. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how a bank for doctors by doctors can help you. Panacea Financial is a division of premise member FDIC. Well, let's get on to a case from Cashlack because we have a great topic. We're going to talk about anxiety disorder here. And Beth, can you start us off? Yes. So um, we're in clinic today and George is a 39-year-old man who presents for his annual wellness exam. He reports that he's been in okay health the past year, although he's been concerned about worsening insomnia. He says multiple times a week, he's waking up before his alarm goes off and feels overwhelmed with worry about the day ahead. Often he cannot get back to sleep. He reports he's worried about his finances, his job stability, current political affairs, um, the pandemic. His physical exam is within normal limits and basic labs drawn prior to his visit show nor, no abnormalities. Um, so we're giving away the, the the spoiler alert of the sort of what we think this might be going on with this patient um, with the episode title. But how would you um, approach a patient like this that you saw in clinic? Yeah, this is <clears throat> this is a great case. Patients present like this all the time in the primary care setting, um, <clears throat> and that report of being been doing okay and having insomnia, I think, is just so classic. And they're they're not always going to come to you and say, I, "I have anxiety. I need help." Right? Our job as the generalist is to tease out that information and and pick out these little features and help the get more information from the patient, um, under, help them understand perhaps what they're feeling, and then help us understand all of the different parts of what they're feeling and put it together that it might be anxiety disorder. What are some red flag symptoms or things that you hear in a history that may, you know, cue you up for anxiety disorder or physical manifestations that are very common for generalized anxiety disorder? There's so many things. So the first thing is really the, the general exam of the patient, right? So we write that general partner physical exam and maybe don't pay so much attention to it, but how they're kind of sitting with you in the room, are they engaged? Do they want to give you information or are they kind of like hesitant to reveal that they've been struggling over the last year? Um, and that sometimes I think is why the insomnia comes up first, right? Like they can tell you they're having trouble sleeping, but maybe you're having a little bit of trouble articulating why they're having trouble sleeping. Um, and then using that insomnia and asking more questions. So do you feel like your muscles are tense? Do you have headaches? Anything else bothering you? Um, and then the other thing that kind of cues me off is, you know, in our general, in a well visit intake, new patient, going through the social history and smoking or alcohol comes up, just exploring that a little bit more, especially in the last two years, p patients will say, yeah, it's just, I've been drinking a little bit more than usual, or I've been trying to quit and I just haven't been able to quit smoking and I haven't been able to. And if you explore what is what the barriers are often, if they're presenting this way, anxiety is a, you know, one of the reasons they're reaching for another cigarette. So um, listening for those little cues so that you can jump in and find the anxiety disorder. Can I, can I do the typical Paul thing and ask us to step back and just sort of define our terms? Because we're, we're sort of getting to the symptoms of something without, I don't think we've really fully defined it yet. I, I certainly, we don't need like the DSM-5 criteria, yeah. but can you sort of just give us your overall sort of conceptual framework for what general anxiety disorder is? And yeah. Then we can kind of get into 
to how it might actually manifest. Yeah, I actually think that defining anxiety disorder is a little hard. It's a little vague, right? So it's excessive worry. And the DSM-5 says that we, it needs to be for six months. I struggle with that a little bit because patients are struggling for, you know, one month, two months, three months, and they're coming to you for something um, related to their anxiety disorder. So, and we can get to that a little bit later. Um, but excessive worry, and that can be something that keep, worries that keep you up at night. You're irritable with other people. You're having trouble focusing because you're worried about other things happening um, or something catastrophic happening. Um, and it, as we get into symptoms, right, like listening to those little cues are so important, but you're right. Learn, knowing what you're listening for, I think, is important. And so that, that's kind of how I picture generalized anxiety disorder. When you go to code this in a note, there's panic disorder, mm-hmm. anxiety, there's agoraphobia, mm-hmm. there's, there's all these. But I, I generally just, maybe this is the wrong thing to do, but I just sort of consider this person this person has anxiety and then maybe I'll treat it differently if there's panic present uh, and I'll explore some, uh, some other, how it's affecting their behaviors or their mm-hmm. social interactions. But mm-hmm. I think I, I don't, I haven't personally used the DSM criteria. Like I, it's not like I'm checking boxes in the, in the clinic. I, I'm not sure, Paul, if you have the same kind of approach. So I think and please, I, I'm anxious to be corrected if I'm doing this wrong, but like, you know, part of the issue I think is that the world is on fire and like, you know, it's just been, yeah. we've had a catastrophic couple of years. And I, I think, you know, by most of, most of the DSM stuff is whether it actually has functional impairment or not. Like, so I think I'm expecting some anxiety from everyone, which is probably not the right thing, but I think the disorder part is, you know, when it actually has functional impact. And I, I, I agree with you, Matt. Like, I think I just sort of think about it as a broad term as opposed to sort of really yeah. um, narrowing things down specifically. But I, I do sometimes have a hard time. I was going to actually ask you if we're seeing more of that um, with recent pandemic. I think probably the answer is yes, but I, mm-hmm. I guess in terms of, since you're the expert, I, I'll just ask you flat out, are we seeing more anxiety with? Yeah, yeah. we are. We are. Um, surveys and all the data supports that we are seeing more anxiety, unfortunately. We're picking a lot of it up on the, just the, they, they start with the PHQ two, mm-hmm. And a lot of the times I'll get a, a positive on that. It's, mm-hmm. and then when I go to then then I generally, we have a form that has both the PHQ nine and the GAD seven together and I'll pick up like how they're functioning and I'll be like, Oh, actually depression is not the big thing. It's actually anxiety. So I think part of what I'm trying to make the point with this is that I was always thought that like I could see the patient that's anxious, but sometimes I have a patient very reserved in clinic Mm -hmm. and they're just like holding it all in and they're very anxious and I don't see it until I am going through questionnaire with them. So I I think that old, like, I'm not sure what it is, but where people say, oh yeah, if you leave the room feeling anxious, the patient's anxious, but that, that doesn't always hold true in my experience. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, I can't, you know, I can think of so many times where I'm actually surprised that anxiety comes into the picture, right? They either look like they're shy or perhaps they de- have depression, yep. but then they will say something, either the sleeping or, you know, like stress at work, something will come up. And then as I'm, you know, typing notes and trying to be efficient, I will turn around and be like, oh, tell me more, right? And that's where it comes out. And I think that's the like primary care piece there, the tell me more, I want to hear more um, that helps us figure it out. We were yesterday. We were talking. Uh, we at here at S Gym. We were talking at lunch with Dr. Saul Weiner, and he was telling us about that. Just sort of listening for those things, and when the patient's giving you the history, that are kind of clues. And if you don't pull that thread, they might you, you might miss something important. And mm-hmm. uh, I think with mood disorders, uh, anxiety, depression, that that is definitely part of the case. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should, I, I mentioned some of the scoring systems. Is there any, do you have fa- a favorite one that you would recommend to the audience? I use the GAD7 often. I think it's helpful 
for me and the patient, actually. So as I'm talking to them, I'm getting some hints that there might be some anxiety or perhaps they've even brought it up themselves. And we'll go into, I think, a little bit later, the differential diagnosis of an anxiety disorder. I think the GAD-7 asks questions that help you kind of parse that out and will clarify to you and the patient perhaps how severe the symptoms are and then get into functional impact. Um, And then as we talk about next steps for treatment, if it's somebody that's a little bit more hesitant, right, I can can show them on the GAD-7 or they even, as they're answering the questions and they tell me more than half the day, every day for everything, it kind of starts to hit home for them too. And for tracking over time, I think it works to track it over time as well. Correct? Yeah. So it's helpful as a baseline. And if you do either therapy or, or um, medication treatment and follow up with them, um, you can redo the GAD7 and see if yes. it's improving. I think it's really helpful for partial remissions too, because, y- you know, Paul, you get these patients that they, they're still not feeling great, but you can, sometimes you can say, well, you were a 14 and now you're a seven. So we, we have made some improvement. You're not in remission yet, but we're, we're, what we're doing is working at least a little bit and you can, you can explore from there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you think through the differential for this in terms of other, you know, comorbid disorders mm-hmm. they have or physical um, complaints? Are there any labs you like to order in this initial workup too? Yeah, I think maybe let's step, take a step back and just talk about the differential. So when patients come in, I think their complaint is, is what will tip me off to the other parts of the differential. So commonly we think of, ADHD, panic disorder, OCD. I think I normally am trying to parse through anxiety disorder, ADHD, and panic disorder, those three things more commonly in my setting. Um, and the the things they tell me, so I can't sleep because I'm worrying or is more likely to me an anxiety disorder. And then we'll kind of, you know, flush out the rest of it. If they're feeling anxious, that's episodic in different settings, and they can tell me what the setting is, and they start to have all of these very intense physical symptoms all at once, definitely thinking about panic disorder. Um, And then ADHD, I think, is very difficult to um, diagnose in the primary care setting, but there are things that will tip me off. So the trouble concentrating, perhaps not because they're worrying, but they're just having trouble concentrating and it's affecting them in multiple settings. Um, Oh, and the last thing I want to throw in is, is this kind of hyperactive part that some people have with anxiety, is it, and the insomnia, is there maybe some hypomania and I need to be thinking about um, bipolar disorder because that will affect treatment down the road. Is there any other sort of disease states that you're looking at, like mm-hmm. you routinely for, say, thyroid dysfunction yeah. or for someone who's presenting with insomnia who has the right phenotype? Are you doing sort of oh, polysomnography before you sort of... Come on, Paul, you got to get that TSH. I, I mean, <laughs> low threshold. But, you know, you know, we talked about in prior episodes, sort of palpitation patients, you know, often mislabeled as anxiety who actually have like, you know, SVTs and yeah. stuff. So I guess sort of what... Is there any other sort of objective testing you're doing other than sort of, um, I think some of the questionnaire stuff, just to make sure that we're actually treating the right thing? Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. I think I agree that just getting the TSH is a low threshold and and especially in a young woman um, or in a young patient doing doing that is helpful. Um, But yes, palpitations, what do they look like when they're sitting in front of you? Like the exam is still a very important part of all of this. Um, Did it happen all of a sudden when associated with other stressors or has this, have they been told for a while that they are like, look anxious, they're hyperactive, but maybe they don't really think they're anxious. Um, so that might tip me off for, um, a TSH, the other organic medical, those are the wrong words for this, but, um, things that might get me concerned are chest pain and shortness of breath that patients have with anxiety, especially panic disorder. And I will do my due diligence as a primary care doctor, right? We don't want to miss those things. So asking a 
pertinent review of systems is still important. I think in general, my practice is to not immediately jump to anxiety mm-hmm. uh, um, as the diagnosis for any sort of physical complaint, just because I think the downside is too is too high. Paul, do you have a similar approach? Well, I, we have this. We have the the diagnostic instruments too, right? Yeah. So we like. I think that's the other thing is I think I sometimes see people sort of rely on gestalt to make the diagnosis, which is you know there's there's a role for it, but I think just because someone seems sort of anxious to me is not a reason to diagnose them with anxiety. Like mm-hmm. I think we have better diagnostic criteria for that. And do you assess uh, suicidal ideation in these patients as soon as you start to kind of think about this? Yeah, once we get through the questions, and I think I, I leave it a little bit to the end, right? Because I want if a patient isn't thinking that they have an anxiety disorder already, and this is new information to them, I let it sink in. And then I I kind of pause and I say, I have a serious question. um, And this is a safe space. But if have there been any thoughts of harming yourself or suicide in the past, just you have to make sure again, that you're not missing it. So important to still do that. I think maybe to summarize what we've talked about so far. So we were talking about George, our 39 year old guy, we're we're thinking might have anxiety. We, We said that we like to take a pretty comprehensive history. Part of the differential that you're thinking about as you're taking your history is you said ADHD and panic disorder. I think we maybe hinted at substance use could be a part of it as well. Mm-hmm. And um, in his case, you, you were trying to tie maybe anxiety and insomnia together. Mm-hmm. And then um, the other thing was OCD was one mm-hmm. of the other ones that mm-hmm. you, you would ask about. Um, and asking them, part of what helped you was if it was panic or another situational anxiety is just asking yep. like what situations is it occurring? Yep, exactly. Am I missing any of the big pieces so far? And and maybe we can give George, uh, Beth, what was his, do we have a score for him on the GAD seven? I think like 10 to 14 is the moderate range and above that is severe and scores let's, lower, mild. Let's say he's around 14. We've done a, a nice kind of review um, of systems with him. We've w- talked through the, the GAD-7. He doesn't have any comorbid um, substance use disorders, thankfully, and no SI. But when you bring up this diagnosis based on the survey, he's really taken aback by the suggestion mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. as a diagnosis. How do you counsel a patient who's surprised by being diagnosed with with something like anxiety? Yeah, <clears throat> usually as I go through the GAD-7, the patient, like I can see them, their wheels start turning and they're kind of reflecting. Um, but I think it is commonly a surprise to patients either because there's stigma about mental health disorders and, um, or they're just not thinking about it and they, they haven't been around other people that have had, um, similar challenges. Um, so if I notice that they are surprised, I, I, I'll just, I'll explain that this, I'll I'll normalize it, right? It is a normal thing. Mental health disorders are are very common. Um, So I'll start by normalizing it. And and I will say, you know, I see this very often. um, And the good thing is that we can offer help. There's therapy, there's medications, but it's really what what you want to get out of it. And I think giving them a little bit of ownership over this new diagnosis um, that carries that carries some baggage with it in the world that we live in, um, it helps a little bit. So, you know, you're struggling with this. What are you hoping that we can get to as we start to talk about maybe some treatment or therapy? Um, what parts of this are really impacting your life functionally that we could uh, maybe address and, and kind of ease in that burden? And as we're going to get, I know, into talking about treatment, I find it's helpful if someone's coming to you and their plan was to talk about an anxiety or a mood disorder, I oftentimes they will maybe have researched medications or talk to people who have been on medications and they want to try 
the same thing that the friend or family member has gotten and, or, or they know they definitely don't want meds and they want talk. So I find that I, I usually try to explore that as part mm-hmm. of that conversation as well. I, I think this situation here is one where if, if you're taking it by surprise, then the patient is, it's, it's like a totally different conversation. Yeah. I think there's non-pharmacologic and there's pharmacologic therapies. Are there any just big general principles that you like to counsel patients about at that first visit, just things they can do right off the bat to help? Yeah. So a little bit of background, I think, for that is, one, I think commonly patients are nervous about medications unless they're already coming to you asking. Um, But for those that are surprised by it, medications are not usually an easy thing that they're receptive to. Um, And sometimes the therapy also has some stigma with it too, right? So the... I think it's the Association for Anxiety and Depression um, actually suggests there's several societies out there that suggest a lot of basic things up front. And in this peri-pandemic world that we live in, where it's really hard to find mental health providers because everyone is full, what can we offer to our patients um, that they can do on their own? So it's, it's pretty, it sounds basic and simple. So ensuring a safe home environment good sleep, access to food. And I know I said that that sounds simple and I know it's not simple for a lot of people. So making sure that you're addressing those social needs first. Um, Exploring sleep. Sleep is a big part of anxiety. And if we can do something to help them get better sleep, then that might improve the symptoms that are impacting their daily life. So really starting at the basics um, is important to remember as a primary care doctor. And I think that's where we all are focused and we know that that's important, but I think that's what we can offer that perhaps other places. And if you forget, I I know, I know there, there are simple things to ask about, not simple things to fix, but if you're trying to just load on medications to a patient Mm -hmm. that just doesn't have some basic need Mm -hmm. of sleep or food security, whatever Mm -hmm. safety in the home, then it's an uphill battle. So I I think it's, it's a great place to start with this. I'd also add I think patients have more coping skills than they think. Mm-hmm. So helping them reflect on that too. So what if, what do you do in these situations that's helpful to you? Is there anyone in your family or your, your network that you can rely on? And I've had patients that say um, they don't want to see a therapist. They feel really well supported and they think they can get through this for now. Um, or maybe like helping them identify who those people are. So those are things that they, that are you know within their reach and in a more timely fashion than just a referral. Well, let's, I think we're going to talk about medications and that's probably what the audience is going to want to hear about. I think some people are more comfortable than others prescribing. Mm -hmm. Is that where you wanted to go with this next, Beth, or are we missing anything else in the the plan here? The only thing I was going to check in is if you had any plugs for some of the apps, websites, folks can use workbooks, any suggestions on those kinds of things? Yeah. So a couple of things, and I guess I should say no no disclosures at this point, if I'm going to mention some apps, but um, before we get to the apps, there are some mindfulness techniques that you can just offer in the, in the exam room. That's very quick to go over. Um, So focused breathing, it's hard for someone that's anxious to take slow, deep breaths. So I actually like have them take their hand out, show me like a high five and I have them trace their finger up and down. So deep breath in, deep breath out as kind of a calming, um, mindfulness modality. There is the rapid muscle. I think I'm saying the term incorrectly, but essentially clenching your muscles in sequence and, and kind of drawing on the difference between a stressed clench state and then a relaxed state is one that's been shown to be effective. Um, And then the apps, 
The, so the hard part about apps is like the data isn't perfect because they haven't been perfectly studied. Um, but actually the apps that most people will recognize do have some randomized controlled trial data that shows that they help. So Calm, Headspace, um, and then Worry Not. And I think Worry Not is free are some apps that I'll suggest to patients. Paul, do you, do you feel comfortable starting medications for anxiety? I imagine you probably do. Do you have any favorites or where do you want to start with this discussion about medications? I, I feel relatively comfortable. I'd be happy to hear if I was wrong. I feel like my, my usual choice is probably SSRIs for most patients, but I would obviously like to hear from our expert if there's any other broad classes that you like first. Or I actually, I think a better way to ask the question is sort of what is your overall treatment approach? Like mm-hmm. how... How do you think about medications when you think about prescribing Mm -hmm. anxiety? Yeah, I agree. SSRIs is where I reach for. I think a little bit about which SSRI, depending on what their symptoms are. So the activating ones versus the sedating ones. Um, And that's really all we have to go off of based on data. Um, There's data that, you know, if if a medication has worked for a family member, perhaps starting there. And then I'll even ask if a patient comes to me with questions. Like if they, if there's one they want to start, I, because as a class, there's not a lot of differences. I will probably just go with that. Um, and then the other thing is that some of them have a shorter half-life. So in counseling them when we start the medication, that's another thing that I'll think about. Are you using, or, well, yeah, I'll just ask. I, I, the, well, actually, no, I'll say. I, mean, I actually use the, the Mayo Clinic Shared Decision Tool for the depression um, cause it's still the same medications mm-hmm. if we're talking about classes mm-hmm. of medications used to talk, to, to go through with patients, what potential side effects there are and what, what features that most interest them. Cause even though we're, we're dealing with anxiety here, I still think that that, that tool itself is really helpful and having the patient choose their medication with you gives them ownership of their treatment and, and improves adherence to some extent too. So I'm not sure is that, are you, is that a tool that you use as well? It's not, but I'm going to steal it. That's a great idea. I love educating the patient as you go through that. Yeah. I wanted to go back to the activating and sedating um, SSRIs. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think it would be really helpful for me personally to to get a little bit more in depth on some of these medications that I think we're probably using, but some of the nuance about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think when I, you know, as I was transitioning from residency to primary care, it was just a class and I was like, I don't know, we pick one, right? Um, And then part of that is counseling the patient. Like this is going to be a little bit of trial and error. You should be prepared for that because it can be disheartening if you start them on a medication and it's not working. Um, But the activating ones I think are helpful to know because most patients with anxiety are, are struggling a little bit with that hyperactive difficulty sleeping. So sertraline and fluoxetine are more activating. Um, and then the sedating ones are paroxetine and somewhat citalopram. So if they're having trouble sleeping, I will start with paroxetine or citalopram and avoid sertraline or fluoxetine. Um, but those tend to work really well too, just from practice anecdotally. So it's hard to just stay away from them. But if we're starting from scratch and they've never been on something, that's what I'll do. And I saw in your slides, and and this has been something that I think I've just come to by default, is is prescribing at the lowest dose. And sometimes even I'll, like, let's say sertraline, for example, Mm -hmm. I might start at half a tablet Mm -hmm. once a day because I just find that some patients just seem to be too amped up or they're just so sensitive to the side effects. And if you start them at too high a dose and they get side effects, then they will not touch that med again and you might have lost even the whole class. Yes. Yeah. And I think... I agree with that. And that's where the counseling comes in. But the um, starting, especially with sertraline, starting with a lower dose. And then you can also think about bridging them a little bit. I do use hydroxazine and sometimes buspirone, which we'll oh, get to okay. in a second. If they're very anxious, 
that sertraline is going to take, you know, it's going to take some a couple mm-hmm. of weeks to really feel the effect. And as we walk them up, I will bridge, I will offer hydroxyzine as a PRN. And then I will think about buspirone because they tend to feel those effects a little bit sooner. The other nice thing about buspirone, it's not a PRN medication, but sometimes patients like the fact that they can take something twice a day. It gives mm-hmm. them a little bit more control. Um, and then generally speaking, if they've if you started them on an SSRI and, and it's you're in partial, you've gotten halfway there, buspirone is your next step for augmenting. So if, if you're if you need to start it earlier on, that is something that I reach for for more of an immediate effect. I think the patients that, uh, so with a guy like George, the the patient that we've been talking about, he's coming here, he's surprised by his anxiety, but I've certainly, and, and maybe Paul's experienced this too, where you get the patient that's just like, they're anxious, they're crying, they want to feel better immediately. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to give you this medicine, two or three weeks, you're going to feel great. Yeah. <laughs> and so but maybe you won't, because then we have to try something <laughs> yeah. else, right? So, yeah. yeah. So in, 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 very specific cases. Uh, I think about benzodiazepines, mm-hmm. but I, I like the idea of, I, I hadn't really thought to use hydroxyzine or buspirone as a bridge. I, yeah. I think that's, that's a, a great idea. Have you, um, what, what would a typical dose look like for either of those agents? If you're doing this? I think it depends a little bit on the patient. So buspirone side effect is that they can feel a little orthostatic after you start it. So if it's a, a young, lower weight female, I will I tend to start a little bit lower because they're they're a little bit more susceptible to those side effects. Um, but if they're a, I I start you know five milligrams BID being a very very low dose. But right. if I'm worried about the side effect, and then ten to fifteen milligrams BID as a starting. If it's a patient that, you know, whose distribution is going to be a little bit more stable, then I'll feel more comfortable starting. And their anxiety is very prominent. I'll feel comfortable starting at 15 and amping them up pretty quickly. 15 BID and going up quickly. That's a great tip. Yeah. I will, I will have to think about that next time I'm mm-hmm. in that situation. Paul? Hydroxyzine, I, I, and I, I'd love to hear your experience with this, it seems to be effective for patients where insomnia is a big somatic manifestation of mm-hmm. their anxiety too. So just a little bit of hydroxyzine at night is sometimes very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. The SSRIs kick in for younger patients, you know, because it, the anticholinergic effects is an antihistamine. It's not something I would do with my older patients, but for someone who's young and does not have a lot of comorbidities, yeah, um, yeah just a, a kiss of <laughs> an antihistamine at nighttime. Yeah. Is, is sometimes helpful. I'll add to that kind of bridging idea, perhaps gabapentin and pregabalin. So if there's some other neuropathic pain I'm thinking about it and I want some kind of like bridging effect and then also the the nighttime sleeping thing, like maybe a dose, a small dose of gabapentin at nighttime as we're waiting for the um, search lane, for example. Right. To, to and, make it. and from what I remember from our sleep medicine shows, which uh, we've done several, uh, the gabapentin dose for sleep is, is a hundred to 300 milligrams before bedtime. It's mm-hmm. not the, it, it's not 900 right. milligrams. Um, just or the 300 that everyone gets, no matter the 300 that everyone gets. Yeah. Yes. What we've talked about so far, medication wise, the SSRIs, some of the ones that may be more sedating were paroxetine and citalopram. Mm-hmm. The sertraline is one of the ones that was more, you said, maybe more activating. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking about starting at a lower dose because you don't want to make someone more anxious in the near term. And then bridging with either maybe hydroxyzine uh, as needed or buspirone twice a day at a lower lower to immediate, intermediate dose, depending on the patient's size. Mm-hmm. And then gabapentin is another one we could think of, especially if we're cross-purposing it mm-hmm. or maybe something else going on with the person. What about the other, uh, anything else on SSRIs before we move on to some of the other classes? 
In terms of starting, I think the, those are the big things to think about. And then we we talked a little bit at the very beginning about other comorbid symptoms. So, you know, IBS, GI symptoms, thinking more about the SNRIs in those situations. But I do still usually go to the SSRIs. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms of burnout can include things like a lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, fatigue, and and many more. It's a conversation that we've been having for years. I feel like I don't have to tell you what burnout looks like because we've all seen it and many of us have lived it. And we often associate burnout with work, but that's not the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feel burned out. And BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life, though in some cases the stress is all too apparent in terms of what the source is. I I will say, recognizing that we should not be relying solely on our own devices to actually mitigate the things that lead to burnout, it is still sometimes helpful to have therapy or additional supports to help you navigate things as we wait for the systems to align themselves in a way that will actually best help and support us. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It is often much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Curbsiders listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com curb. That's BetterHelp.com curb. This episode is sponsored by LocumStory.com. Curbsiders, have you ever thought of a different way of practicing medicine? Maybe you're burned out and you need a change of pace, or you're just looking to supplement your income. Well, locum tenens might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenens, either full-time or on the side, then you probably have a bunch of questions. And fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need because it's packed with unbiased information from clinicians like you. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell you. It's just a resource for information. And they have all these handy tools. They can help you compare different locums agency. There's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. And they can answer questions from basic stuff like what is locum tenants all the way to more complex things about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and much more. The Locum Story blog, it features content and perspectives from actual Locum's physicians who have firsthand Locum's experience. So visit locumstory.com today. It's the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about Locum Tenens. What does the follow-up look like when you start somebody on a medicine and how are you counseling them to to uptitrate? Yeah, I think about it in a couple of ways, like how, when are we going to make some sort of contact and how that contact is going to happen? Again, thinking about like their lives and, you know, the virtual, somewhat virtual world we're in still. Um, so four weeks, because I, especially with like severe anxiety, I want to check in with them. Even though I offer to patients, let me know if this is, if you feel like you're having side effects or this is really not doing the trick, we can switch you over before I see you again. They usually don't reach out. So I make sure to have an appointment on the books pretty soon to make sure we're making progress or, and things haven't gotten worse and we don't know about it. And if you're lucky enough to have a behavioral health person, yeah. Uh, we have a social worker in some of the places where I've worked, uh, multiple places at this point, uh, where I was able to tell them, Hey, I started this person and they're both starting some sort of non-pharmacologic therapy with that person. That person will let me know if the medicine isn't going well. So if people have that sort of resource, it it really helps because they can do that two week check-in and you don't lose that, that month Mm -hmm. person took one dose and stopped it because they didn't feel well. Yeah. It's great if they're already seeing a therapist or they're able to see a therapist. Unfortunately, in the last couple of years, I've just had a really hard time getting the 
a, a therapist available, unfortunately. So I, I kind of, I make that happen in my. Yes. Follow-up. Okay. Well, what, what about the, the SNRIs, any nuance there that you wanted to point out to the audience? Are you also starting those at lower doses than you would in somebody that's having a depression? Can those be activating as well? My, my impression was maybe they could be. So venlafaxine, I worry about because it's short acting mostly. So if the patient is very, um, sensitive, I think to taking the medication and perhaps not taking it at the exact same time the next day or something like that, or missing a dose, I'll be careful about venlafaxine. Um, but if that's not an issue, I do prefer venlafaxine over duloxetine. It, it, there is some data that it's more effective than duloxetine at anxiety symptoms specifically. Are there any side effects in particular for this entire class, SSRI and SNRI, yeah. that you let folks be aware of or yeah. be thoughtful about? Because if people Google these, of course, yeah. you know, a laundry yeah. list. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So in patients that already have anxiety and they're worrying about things, if you're going to introduce another side effect that they haven't expected, right, you could amplify. So counseling your patients on side effects is very important. GI side effects being the most common. Um, and I find that usually if we walk through it ahead of time, they're they're much more calm about it. And when I follow up, and sometimes patients are starting to have those symptoms, they're, they actually want to just kind of see if they go away over time instead of switching immediately or just giving up. So GI side effects, decreased um, sexual interest is another one. And I counsel patients, you know, it's hard to know if, if that is from increased anxiety or the medication. So let's try and we can always switch later. So let's say we, we start our patient on paroxetine. We like the sedating effects. It, so it's, and it's the one you've chosen together through shared decision-making. And then the patient returns to you and he's experiencing some of the sexual side effects that we might be concerned about. So say he has a decreased libido or anorgasmia or what have you. Is this a case where you would do sort of augmentation with bupropion or, or like how, mm-hmm. how, would you, how would you address this specific concern? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think I do two approaches and I discuss it with a patient. So either we could, I mean, he's, he's feeling better, so it's hard to taper him off and switch him. Um, but one option is just doing buspirone by itself, or he's feeling better, but still having some symptoms and adding bupropion on. And the benefit of that is that it actually can decrease the de- the sexual side effects of SSRIs. Um, it's not one that I would start by itself in anxiety disorder upfront. So that's something that's important to remember because it can increase anxiety symptoms, but adding it on after the fact, if you're worried about um, side effects down the road can be helpful. I did not know that. You're saying that if someone's on an SSRI having sexual side effects and you add bupropion, it somehow mitigates mm-hmm. the side effects. Total knowledge gap there for me. Oh, that's good. Good to know. So with the sexual side effects, I do find that that's one in general, just that that patients, especially male patients, are are worried about with going on this. I guess mm-hmm. weight gain would be the other big one that, yeah. that folks worry about as well with this Um and for for the agents, I believe on our obesity medicine episode we recently did, fluoxetine was one of the ones that was less associated with weight gain is what she told us. But do you have any other tips there for? Yeah, I do have patients concerned about that as we start them because I think they hear that from either other people or in, in the lay media. I don't have anything specific. I kind of, I just... I say, let's weigh the benefits here. Like, right, this anxiety is, it sounds like it's its impacting your life. I think it's worth trying. I think for all of the SSRIs, the data is kind of uncertain. So I, I say that maybe it's a possibility, but it's not really clear that the effect is there. Yeah. Um, so if you're aware of it ahead of time, you right. at least say, let me know if you start to notice the weight gain because then we can switch you to something else. Exactly. Uh, that's part of my strategy. Mm-hmm. I think the SNR, SNRIs maybe have less weight gain. So if that's a concern, then I yeah. would, you know, think about those agents. But Or perhaps, and then bupropion again would be another one. Yeah. Okay. 
before we talk about some of the other types of agents, um, what would be a typical like treatment duration? How do you talk to patients about that? I like to use the term like exit strategy um, when I'm talking about this. So what is it? What would that look like? Yeah, that's a good question. I think sometimes patients will bring up the idea of being dependent on a medication because again, there's like the association with the history of benzos. So one counseling them that the medications are not dependent and we can taper you off in the future once we get you stable. Um, So there's some data that it's actually helpful to treat patients with anxiety disorder to a year. If you stop them at six months, those patients had a higher um, relapse in the following six months than the ones that were treated out to a year. Um, and then the other addition to that is if they're also getting, had, had had CBT or undergoing some sort of therapy, they're less likely to relapse. So that kind of plays in. But thinking about, I think at that one-year mark and earlier if they seem very stable and they have other tools that, from therapy that are helping them and then tapering at that point. And is it a taper over weeks, I would mm-hmm. imagine, like you come down by a certain percentage and yeah. every, every week or two. Yeah. It's, I'm going to be honest, they do it a little bit different depending on which one. And mostly because especially with the short acting ones in a patient with underlying anxiety, the first thing I do is I say, let's back off slowly. If you notice your symptoms return, let me know. Right. Cause the last thing we want to do is stop it and like have the same issue again. Yeah. Um, but with, um, Escitalopram and venlafaxine and I believe paroxetine, the shorter acting ones, we I back off very slowly. And the way I decide how slowly to do it is actually to ask the patient. Like if you miss a dose or if you take a dose later in the day, do you notice? And if that's the case, I have decreased venlafaxine like increments at two weeks, like very, very slowly. Um, And then for the longer acting ones, you can do it a lot quicker. So a a half a dose every week probably and get them off probably in two weeks. Excellent. Can I, and I should have asked this earlier and I'm sorry um, to kind of throw this in out of order, but I, I would love to hear your script for how you counsel patients, how they'll feel after they start the medications. Because often I will get, you know, I I don't want to be a zombie when I start this. Yeah. I don't think there's a, 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 a great grasp of sort of how psychotropics work in general. And I, I always struggle with how to sort of address their concerns um, without being dismissive. So could you sort mm-hmm. of like just talk me through how you talk to patients about how they'll feel differently once they start the medication? Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing to tell patients, it's, it's quite honestly for every person, hard to know how every person will respond. So I will say that up front, right? So if, and, and this idea of having some fogginess, right, I think is heard a lot from other people and the data is again, a little bit equivocal. So I will say, if you feel that way, let me know. You, we can change the dose to a nighttime dose so you're not feeling that as much. Um, but if you're feeling it, it, it might be part of the medication. So we should talk about it. Um, and then thinking about how your anxiety is starting to change or your panic episodes are starting to change. Um, And for some patients, it can be helpful to keep a diary so that they see that progress. I will say that with a caveat, and some patients with a history of trauma um, or like a natural disaster type of setting, journaling and kind of keeping track of these things without guidance can be triggering. So that's a a little bit of a caveat, Um, but guiding them on what to look for that side effects. Like if you feel them, they could be real, please tell me so that they know that you're going to listen and hear them. I wanted to bring it to you in, in your talk, you had a slide for, this was from Bandolo and psychopharmacology, the international, some journal of psychopharmacology. <laughs> and it, it had all these different agents we've been talking about, mm-hmm. SSRIs, SNRIs, benzos, hydroxyzine, buspirone, catiapine, 
and mm-hmm. regabalin. And Paul, what do you think was the most efficacious in that based on these studies that they were looking at? Which one of those agents would you guess? It's probably the one we use all the time in primary care, right? Uh, oh, yeah. No, yeah, it's the one I have the most familiarity with. Uh, certainly not something like an atypical antipsychotic. Or right. Yeah. That was, was that surprising to you, Paul? I mean, it's not something I can't say. I Have you prescribed ketiapine for, for anxiety? It's for me, it's more a can I kick down the road than something I will start. Yeah. De novo. So it's, it's not something I have a whole lot of comfort with. Good thing we have uh, an expert here <laughs> with us. Well, I just, well, I feel, <laughs> I'm not the expert. Uh, well, I will say I'm a primary care kindred spirit. It's not one that I use a lot. If, if there are, if there's trouble, really bad insomnia and we're not getting anywhere, whether an SSRI, quetiapine can be helpful. Again, the important thing to know there is the side effects are very different um, than the SSRIs we've been talking about. So it's important to know that, right? So a lot of metabolic side effects that you as a primary care doctor are going to be comfortable treating, but knowing that you have to watch out for them. Um, But if that's where we are, it's really a trigger for me that psychiatry needs to get involved. And we've done our due diligence as a primary care doctor to try the other medications first. Yes. I think that uh, most of my patients have metabolic syndrome already. So I hesitate to give them a (laughs) medicine that is most surely to give it to them. Uh Is is ketiapine is it being used as monotherapy in some patients or is it being used in addition to SSRIs, SNRIs? I think it's usually in addition to, especially in the primary care setting, I've never seen it used as monotherapy. Right. I think we always like to ask about when to refer. I Mm -hmm. certainly, if I'm starting to think that I need to delve into atypical antipsychotics, that's, I I typically don't touch those uh, or certainly not without a prompt referral. And uh, what else might make you think someone needs a referral for an anxiety disorder? I think if we've tried a couple of classes of medications um, and honestly, we're having trouble finding a therapist for the patient, that's when, you know, I'm, I'm going to reach out to either our th- our, ther- our psychiatrist that's tied in with the clinic or hopefully a psychiatrist. Again, everyone's busy. So whether they can get in is a question. Um, but trying multiple classes of medication, still seeing the patient really struggling in terms of impacting their life, then I will reach out for help. And then if we've kind of exhausted our options and we haven't seen the improvement that the patient is looking for, that is um, definitely a place to refer. We talked a little bit earlier in this, but I want to bring it back to benzos. When are you reaching for those? I always really hesitate to reach Mm -hmm. for those. We mentioned exit strategy. I will have a very clear-cut exit strategy and uh, maybe some sort of a patient contract if I'm starting those. Yeah, that's a hard one. I can probably think of one instance where I have de novo started benzo on someone that has not been on it in, in the past, and I've only done it when starting a better medication, right? And it's that's in a patient that is very anxious. It's very much impacting their daily life. And I'm not sure that waiting the two to four weeks for the medication to help out is, is, is going to be enough for the patient. I will only do it if they have absolutely no history of any type of substance use. Um, and then actually exploring like the home setting and knowing the other things that have gone on. Had they reached out to other people for help, really taking a good social history. I, I with a lot of caution. And and what about for panic as well? Like, I mean, yeah. our patient we gave you as generalized anxiety, but if someone's having very clear cut, like mm-hmm. panic attacks, is, is that a time that, is that the same kind of conversation still? Or do you give people? I think I, I entertain it more frequently with a panic disorder, but I actually still try hydroxyzine first and okay. see if they have help. And if it's not working, then we can go there. Yeah. But hydroxyzine with a beta blocker, we like, we have to try that before we get to, to benzos because those are usually effective. Okay. Yeah. 
And do you have a, a favored benzodiazepine that you that you prefer that you use commonly in clinical practice? Yeah, Paul, there's still way too much uh, alprazolam out there. I it just it just <laughs> cr- crushes me every time. <laughs> or like yeah, the routine like the the TID dosing that is, gets from some sort of outside. Yeah, oh, goodness. yes, but yeah. So I, I I guess I was hoping for the answer to not be <laughs> that one. <Yeah>. specific. <laughs> the absence of. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. So no favorite, no favorite. I, I think for me, like lorazepam, very low dose, uh, half milligram, something like that yeah. is, is what I will, if I am ever prescribing, uh, that's something that I might prescribe for a very clear cut. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's what we're going to start you on something. I'm going to give you, uh, we're going to check in every month. I don't want you to take these every day as needed, take it as needed right. and try to ramp up whatever is going to be their chronic age. Exactly. Giving a limited supply. I think the other thing I'll add to that is if this patient is presenting to the ER, especially with a lot of panic episodes, that is one place I'll think about it, but I will still try hydroxyzine first. But that's that's a right because every time they show up to the ER, they're not getting the other holistic yes. care kind of approach that they need. Um, and they really just need to come back to clinic. So that's one other place I think okay. about it. Deepa, can you give us uh, a couple take-home points, like favorite take-home points mm-hmm. that you think maybe uh, the audience, that you definitely want them to rep, re- not maybe, let's let you strong language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are two or three uh, take-home points that you definitely want people to remember? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing is remembering what a primary care doctor can offer that a lot of times gets missed in other settings. And somebody said it beautifully during a plenary yesterday here at SGAM is be a listener, right? So listen to what your patient is saying. What are they hoping to get out of treating their anxiety disorder? Listening so that you can pick up on the cues that there might be underlying anxiety disorder. I think that we're not gonna be able to diagnose and treat unless we do that first. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And I wanted to give a special thanks to our writer, producer, co-host for this episode, very soon to be, maybe by the time this airs, Dr. Beth Garbs Garbatelli, and to our managing producer, Carly Loy, and the whole team at Podpaste. Neuro Toronto is the editor for The Digest. Elizabeth Proto is managing our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, Paul, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.